Hello everyone, welcome to our first episode of I'd love to, but I'm so tired. My guest is someone I haven't actually seen in around nine years, but we've strongly bonded over workplace memes and cat videos. Farah has a 39-year-old Jordanian-American, born and raised in Jordan to a Jordanian father, a very cool guy, and an American mother, a cool lady, who has called Jordan her home for the last 50 years. She has a background working on human rights, women's rights, and gender issues across the Middle East and North Africa, and more recently has been working at the United Nations to support the Security Council in New York, moved to the US about eight years ago. Farah's big dream is to retire early and open a cat, dog, and donkey sanctuary somewhere in the wild, she can be found sharing pics of her cats, Jellybean and Ellie, to cheer people up. Welcome, Farah. <laughs> Thank you. That's like the best intro. <laughs> I'm so glad. Um, and I'm so grateful that you're here. Like I said, we haven't seen each other in genuinely years. But it's amazing that I'm becoming closer and closer to people who, even if I don't see all the time, share the same values almost. And I feel we all have these very similar themes in our life of things that are making us very tired. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So I guess let's start with the first one. I mean, you said quite a few things make, make you tired, but you are Jordanian American living in America with the name Farah. And am I right to assume that people never get your name right? Always, always. Um, but I don't let them Americanize my name too much. I will let them say, I will say, introduce myself as Farah, I would go Farah, like far away. Um, I don't know what that says about me, my choice of words, but because then they'll call me Farah and it's just really upsetting. And I didn't realize how difficult it was for Western ears to pick up Farah when I like introduced myself. They're like, oh, Fada, F-A-D-A. I was like, no, not Fada <laughs> at all. So then I just started to like really emphasize the R without rolling it and no strong H at the end. It's surprising how difficult that strong H is. Yeah. I don't know. And then my family, like we just have nicknames. So like my mom's never really said my name unless I was in trouble, but then she could say it. So it was mm. fine. I guess, you know, 50 years in a country will do that to you. Do they then feel very surprised about your background and how well you assimilate in America? They're often surprised and they always say, oh, your English is so good. And I hate that so much. I hate it so much. It's like, yeah, you know what? We have schools too where people go for education. So I usually like withhold that my mother's American just because people are like, oh, that's why you speak English so good. And I'm like, so well, you mean I speak it so well. <laughs> like I had so much grammar at school. Like, Yeah. So, yeah, they're often surprised. Plus, I think maybe I don't look like what they assume is a typical Arab. I think part of it is like the mixed genes, but also like from the Levant region where some people can be fairer. My father's mother's also Circassian. So like from the Caucasus Mountains, so as white as you can possibly get. I guess. <laughs> so a big mix of genes. So people tend to be surprised like, oh, you're not from here oh how interesting and then they start saying oh yes I hear an accent and you're like mm, okay now you hear the accent now that I've said something so well, do you feel they say that they have no idea how to react I, I feel like a lot of people in the U.S. are very disconnected from the rest of the world and even people who think they're connected like my downstairs neighbor super lovely she keeps saying oh yeah how's Turkey I was like I'm not from Turkey <laughs> how many times I have to tell you 
was like, I even met your Israeli friend and I said to him, oh yeah, we're neighbors. You know, that typical thing that like Arabs and Israeli will be like, oh yeah, we're neighbors. Another political discussion that that's for another day. Uh, yeah, how's everything in Turkey? Oh, I saw the earthquakes. Is your, fa- is your family okay? I was like, yeah, I mean, we got very, they didn't feel much of the aftershocks that hit the region, but uh, thanks for asking, I guess. So it's, it's interesting. I think, yeah, they just don't seem to be aware of the rest of the world and how it works. And they just think America's like the best place to be. But honestly, all I see is like everybody's struggling. Everybody, it's hard to get by. It's, it's not the best. There are places where actually life can be easier for you because not everything needs to be a struggle. Is this something you always recognized in America since moving there? Is it something that's happened since the pandemic? Is it a certain set of events, the friendships that you have? Yeah, since I moved here, because I was aware that it was a very, you know, capitalist system that they had issues around like health insurance, but I didn't really know so much. And then I got into the system and I was like, what's this? Like I moved here for a job and I had excellent health care, but I had very not excellent boss who bullied me and after about 10 months of the job I decided it wasn't worth my health because it was taking its toll on my mental health and my physical health and so I left I quit that job with nothing lined up because I've never done this before in the U.S. also so I'm used to like oh in Jordan I can quit my job and then like in a couple weeks I find a new one it's easy not the case in New York I learned so I was unemployed for a while and it was like well do I pay for the cheap insurance, like $1,000 a month when I have no income? Or do I do my best not to get hit by a bus and give myself enough money for rent and food um, until I find something? So yeah, it was six months of that being like, I hope I don't get hit by a car. Unreal. And millions of people are in that position every single day in America. Yeah. And this is like with Obamacare or the American Care Act, which is supposed to make it more affordable if you're, if you don't have an income. And so I, there was one time where I think because my depression got really bad after the bullying and everything, I went to see a doctor and just paid out of pocket. And that was like $350 for a 10 minute visit. So, but I was like, you know what, I just need to see a doctor. I need to get a prescription. That's better than a thousand dollars a month. Yes, it is. And it's probably better than getting so deep into that state where it's going to take you longer to even find a job, get back on your feet. But it must be exhausting always feeling that you have to be on your feet at all times. Yeah, there's something about this place. And my mother said it to me. She said, you know, everybody who's come to America of all different kinds of minorities have had to struggle. And so if you're going, you're it's expected that you're going to struggle. And I, mm-hmm. I think this is also a generational thing of mm-hmm. like, but there's no need to struggle. Just because you struggle doesn't mean the people after you have to struggle. It's already hard enough. So it seems to be part of the culture here of it's difficult. We're all trying to get by, but just pull yourself together and get on. Yeah, it's been quite interesting. And very exhausting. I honestly just can't imagine how that must feel in the UK. We're lucky with the NHS, which has its own problems, you know, as you'll know. But at least I always am comforted that if anything were to happen to me, I'm not going to be in a situation where I can't get the help that I need. 
Yeah, I always tell people about my experience with the NHS because I did study in the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, I did my master's in the UK and I very smartly finished my dissertation before I went to Notting Hill Carnival where I promptly got hit by a bus, by a bus. I got hit by a car. Luckily, I had had a few drinks, so I was quite relaxed when I got hit by the car. But I, I, it was a oh pedestrian God. zone. The car wasn't supposed to be there. And it basically, the impact zone was on my wrist. So it was like, I was walking around with a broken wrist for a while yeah. and got to the hospital. And honestly, the NHS was amazing to me. I was like, I just had to, okay, I had to wait. I wasn't priority. I wasn't having a heart attack. I didn't have a problem. Like my hand was swollen. It hurt. That's fine. Then they saw me, like all these x-rays, everything. They gave me medication. Eventually I had to have surgery on it. Everything was done for free. And I was like, thank God for the NHS. Going back to the point about struggling and your mom's opinion of that, I was thinking about your background, my background, and whether you think that this exhaustion that someone like you and me feel, we're of a certain generation, and we're also going to talk about our background and being in these American schools and having these two identities. But I wonder if this exhaustion is very much due to our generation and what's going on in the world. I understand your mom saying it's a struggle, but I do, I'm not sure if our parents or our parents' parents, when they moved across countries, whether they already had those typical burdens, or maybe I'm being naive. Yeah, we've had lots of these conversations with my mother recently, and it's really interesting because she's like, yeah, well, I lived through Vietnam. I was like, yeah, but I lived through like seven Vietnams since you're Vietnam. And I know that she's gone through them as well. But, you know, she's had a home, she had stability, she had an inc like a steady income, she had a husband, like all of these different things. Um, and yeah, okay, there were times where maybe things were tough, but it wasn't ever to the point where we were going to lose anything. Mm -hmm. we, we just have some really interesting conversations. And I think this yeah. is a really excellent meme of like where someone's like, what's going on? And why don't millennials have like midlife <laughs> crisis? And it was like, well, <laughs> here are all the reasons. Like we've just been crisis after crisis. And honestly, it really has been like that since I feel like since oh my god I was gonna say like 2001 like 9-11 but way before even with like the first Gulf War I remember as a kid like everything that's going on and you were in Yemen so I'm sure you had a, a lot of experiences there too and I just you know you remember taping up windows because you're worried that the bombs are gonna smash things and you know, to be six years old, seven years old, and, and your family trying to explain to you why you're taping windows is fascinating and why there's like a storage area downstairs where there's like so many cans of tuna and beans that your father obsessively bought because you might have to hide. So that was really interesting. So it starts with that. Then you have like a little bit of a peaceful time. Then that whole 9-11 stuff happens. And at the time, I think my parents very much believe in the, the American education system. And so they sent all of my siblings to the U.S. for a university. And the expectation was that I would go. But then that happened. And I was graduating in 2002. And I was like, I'm not going there if they're attacking people. Like, I'm not... I'm not the most practicing Muslim, but it's still a part of my identity. So I was like, I'm not going there. And then that's what prompted me to study in Europe. So I got to study in Switzerland for my bachelor's. And then I got to go to the UK for my master's. And so I really loved Europe a lot. And just it was a whole different experience. I had a very similar experience to you in the sense that my father 
he grew up in the US and so he very much believed as well in the American system. We were very privileged. We got to attend international school in Sanaa. That's how we learned our English and our sports and made lots of friends. And, you know, we would travel maybe every other summer, every three summers. It was a very privileged lifestyle. And the same exact thing happened. 9-11 happened and my dad sat me down and he said, things are going to be very different now in the US if you want to go there. I don't really recommend that you do. And I insisted on applying to some Ivy League schools. And he said, if you get into those, okay, fine. But luckily for him, I didn't. And that's why I also came to Europe. But I think it's okay for me to say this, but I think you and I are one of the, some of the privileged where, yes, we were taping up our windows, but our lives weren't so drastically impacted. And yet we feel all of this trauma all of this effect and there are people who are still going through it now and it is when was the last time we had a chance to relax yeah and I think that's why like our generation is just living off of like meditation app and just anything to keep us calm I don't don't know about you but the last few months I think I come home from work or I stay home from work like (laughs) wait how does it go some days some days I'm working from home and some days I work in the office well, as soon as my workday is done, I can't watch TV. I don't want noise. I don't want that. Like sometimes I'm finding myself sitting here just staring blankly, just being like, I need this quiet. I need this calm. <laughs> because I think everything's just becoming so overwhelming and it's taking its toll, I think. And, and I recently spoke with, through my work, we work with sometimes groups of graduate students at NYU and I was having a one-on-one with one of them. She was asking advice about like career and UN and how do you get in. And whenever I see someone who has like very great potential, I'm willing to spend some time to tell them, these are your options and this is how you can try to get a foot through the door, blah, blah, blah. So we're having this conversation and then she was saying to me, yeah, we have a hard time explaining to our professor who's like 70 something that our generation has a huge amount of anxiety because we don't know if we have a future. And he just doesn't seem to understand that. And so while we're saying we're facing these things, like they're on a whole other level of they don't even know if they're going to exist in 10 years. There's that. And also maybe the person you were mentoring didn't feel this. But in addition to not knowing whether they're existing, the professor's generation probably did hustle and get rewarded from that hustle. Whereas nowadays, I feel people don't see the point of hustling. I think we're questioning why are we hustling? Yeah. Where where have we been tricked to think that we should be hustling? And second of all, even if they are, they're not being, the rewards are not the same. Yeah, I think so. I think definitely. And it's a lot of it now is, and you see this again with memes a lot that we've been sharing with each yeah. other. Like, oh, thanks so much for all this hard work where you like worked insane yeah. hours, weekends and pulled your hair out. Here's some pizza. Yeah, You know, and I was just talking to someone about my recent frustrations with work and I'm really hoping I can find a new job to move on to. Basically, I did all this legwork for a huge conference that was moderated by my bigger boss, not the big boss, but my bigger boss and picked out panelists, worked really hard, spoke with them, had one on one meetings to figure out like, how can I make sure the moderation goes well, what kind of questions would be useful, like based on their research and their background, what can I ask them that would be interesting to the audience? And so did all this legwork, prepared some moderation notes for my boss, put together bios, everything, not even a thank you. And like, he just went and had the panel, didn't tell me like, hey, excellent panel, it went well, or 
or like not excellent panel. Maybe we don't need these people in the future. Any kind of feedback would be great, but like no actual appreciation for all the work that I did, which is like, it wasn't a little bit of work. And so now I'm starting to, I think it's also been like several years of that pattern. And I'm starting to also think, well, you know, why do I bend over backwards and overextend mm -hmm. myself for a lot of things when at the end of the day, you don't get a, a simple thank you. So I guess what people are saying, quiet quitting, which is mm -hmm. not quiet quitting. It, it's just performing your job the way it's meant to be performed and not overdoing anything. Yeah, it's basically understanding that you have value and worth and that you're not willing to work for someone without them understanding that as well. Yeah. And that there's more to life than your work. Like your whole life shouldn't be your job. Like you should be able to have things outside of work and say, sorry, I'm not working till eight tonight. I have plans. I have things to do. And I think another thing is, I don't know if, if you have the same thing, but like they see you're a, a woman without a family, without kids. They think you don't have responsibilities. You're expected to work more, whatever it is. And so that's a different kind of discrimination that you face. But I do know that also on the other hand, like my friends who do have children sometimes feel like they're not given as many opportunities for trips abroad because they're worried that, you know, nobody wants to put this undue pressure on them, but it's really actually preventing them from opportunities from going and um, traveling yeah. and taking part in events. You're so. damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And the simple answer would be, well, you could just have a conversation. And your conversation yeah. is going to be different with the people you speak to rather than make the assumption or not be bothered as an employer to do that work. Instead, you're making the other people do that work for you by constantly second guessing what you might be thinking about them and how you might perceive them and what opportunities you might want to give them. Absolutely. And it's just like, yeah, why don't you sit with that employee and say, there is this opportunity, no pressure either way. If you want to travel, we'd love for you to go. If you don't want to travel, it doesn't mean we're not going to offer you other opportunities in the future. So it's, it's an easy conversation to have, but nobody's willing to take that first step. I completely agree with that. Actually, talking about your work a little bit and the injustices you see in the human rights information that you come across, the women's rights information you come across, how does that impact you? My mother tried to warn me when I told her <laughs> I wanted to study human rights. She said, you know, it's tough. It'll get to you. It's yeah, it starts to weigh on you after a while. And especially, uh, I mean, it's no secret the UN isn't exactly a perfect system, right? So you want to do something, you want to change things, but then also your hands are tied. Some, it's also not the most effective system. Everything that you see, you know, happening in Syria after the earthquake, it's like, why is it so difficult? People need help. You're seeing all these horrible images. Why can't we do something? And it just is not so straightforward and not easy. And it does take its toll on you. And I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to leave Jordan as well, partially, was that the more I was working on, especially the women's rights aspect, the more I started to become aware of what a bubble I grew up in. Like, I didn't realize how much my father protected me from like the realities of what it's like to be a woman in the Middle East. I just thought, oh yeah, some people have that experience, but it's not the majority. And it turned out that no, actually most people have that experience and I am the minority of like, you know, not facing abuse, not my life isn't under threat because maybe I talked to a boy who wasn't 
my brother or something like that, you know, some of these things that happen. And so the more I started working in that space in the Middle East, the more I became aware of how privileged I was in that sense and how difficult it is to exist. So then I started to become more aware of like how I'm dressing, where I'm walking. And it, I don't know, in Jordan anyway, like you get harassed as a woman, no matter what you're wearing, no matter what's going on, whether you're veiled or not veiled, it doesn't matter. You're always going to get harassed. But those things on top of everything, plus hearing the stories. Before I was leaving, there were instances in the South where like more fundamentalist kind of behaviors were coming up and things that were happening to women that were unheard of before, like a beheading in the middle of the street in front of everyone, which is not, yeah, it's not something that we've experienced before. You've had like, you've had women murdered in the name of so-called honor, but not so blatantly in public in front of everyone with a beheading. Like it's just, it was very vicious and very violent. So the, yeah, stories like that started to kind of take their toll as well. And it was just like, you know, I think I can continue working on things like human rights and women's rights, but maybe I need to do it in a different context where I can't see so much of myself in it. Yes. I think it's always going to be hard though, as a woman and then as a woman of ethnic minority in the U.S. to not relate to a lot of the things that you see like you said even by living a privileged lifestyle even in a bubble it could have been you that's always the thing that's on my mind it's like that could have been me no matter what I'm doing no matter what I'm watching when I read news about women being beat up or or killed and I think that could have been any woman it almost frustrates me if the people I'm watching it around me or the people I debate it with say well, no, of course, it could have never happened in the UK or it never could have happened in the West. I sometimes feel so upset because I don't think they truly understand how close we are living to that truth all the time. Yeah. And the thing that drives me crazy is with the people who say, oh, but it would never happen in the West. But look at, look at, for example, in the UK now, the situation with the Met Police, the report that came out, the, I forget his name, but he doesn't, his name isn't worth remembering because he's a murderer. But he, you know, he's a police officer and he used his power and he murdered and, you know, raped women. Sorry, sexual assault, trigger warning. But it happens. Women's lives are at risk all the time. And I'm seeing it also that that is a thing that is in the West. That's like, you have to be constantly alert. Like I started, I actually started looking up like, where can I get pepper spray? And it's different state to state. And apparently in New York, you have to go to one of the police shops. There are shops that police have. Like, this is crazy. (laughs) So, no, it's true. It's women are constantly under threat everywhere all the time I think and I don't think that's an exaggeration I, I I still often think about certain things before I leave the house and I'm living in like Brooklyn where it's kind of chill and cool but it's still like do I want to go out at 11 at night wearing this thing and mm-hmm. walking to the subway and you know you always have to think these different things into consideration yeah absolutely and the thing you just said about the pepper spray and the shops and the police. So two things strike me about that. First of all, that somehow in America, they have commercialized protection for women. And that is so exploitative. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that the onus is still on that person who feels afraid to do the work and look after their safety. Now I understand we're all responsible for ourselves, but at the end of the day, 
it would be nice to imagine a world where a person didn't have to fill so much of their mental space with how they can exist safely. Yeah, it's as simple as everybody's like, oh, this amazing nail polish that you can dip into your drink to see if it's been drugged. And it's like, well, why should I? I shouldn't have to do that. That sounds insane. And then even, I think, was it, when, when did I go into the office? I think I was in on Thursday and I was walking back from the office to the subway and some guy wanted my attention and I just didn't give it to him. And I kept walking and then I could see him from the corner of my eye, reach out and try to touch me. And I had my headphones on. I always have my headphones on and I'm walking fast, but the music's always low so that if something happens, I can hear, I can, you know, react. But I could see this arm reaching out to me and I just yelled, don't touch me in like the middle of Bryant Park with all these people looking. I was like, don't touch me. (laughs) It was just like... And I didn't know how I would react. I've never, I've never been put on the spot where someone's hand was so close to me. And I was like, you know, I think the only thing you can do is call it out. As, at least if you're in a place surrounded by a lot of people, you can do it. But what happens when you're standing on the subway platform alone? You know, it's a whole other story. Um, but it is, it really is. The onus is always, is constantly on women. It's like, why, well, why was she out walking alone at night? Mm. Well, why can't she go out walking alone at night? Mm. I mean, it is also a question that if someone says, why can't you go walking out alone at night? I would say, well, because X, Y, and Z. But then again, it is because of other people and not because of her. Yes. That's another thing that's very exhausting. It is very Uh, exhausting. Yeah, you're always thinking of like, okay, is this person behind me, walking behind me, just walking behind me? Or are they trying something? You know, now I'm in the age of like picking up your phone and putting on your front facing to see like how close is this person where are they moving yeah you're you're constantly on edge I think this is one of this general theme where we're trying to find solutions to problems that really we should be finding solutions to the problems you know I shouldn't have to use my front facing camera to see if someone's close to me again that people should be trying to educate themselves and the community should be coming together and it sounds very idealistic and it is but I also feel that there's no reason for why we shouldn't be striving for idealistic societies we're in 2023 it's amazing I don't know there's another podcast invisible women I don't know if you've heard it I read the book yeah so she has a podcast and she's done two seasons and it's like some of the things are so baffling to me and especially now with the rolling back of abortion rights for example there was an episode on data and what uh everybody does with their data like what google does how people can buy your data and you know the period apps and everything like that and then how that could be fed to the like anyone can access and buy that information and so people can track your period if they want and they can know if you're late and they can know if maybe you didn't announce a pregnancy and can arrest you yeah so it's like what kind of big brother hell is gonna happen with all of this information and that's why everyone started going on about you know don't use the period data tracking app things which luckily I stopped using a long time ago because I mean I'm not that organized so it was probably (laughs) just more exhausting it's like another thing to track yeah and it's like what's what's your mood today and it's like I don't know go away (laughs) it's It's always cranky leave me alone (laughs) tired I'm always 
inspired. Yeah. Oh, wait. I hadn't heard about the data. I had heard of Invisible Women. Yeah. And pull up the episode for you. I can share it with you later. But the whole podcast is really great. And it's like a great exercise in like getting your women rage on because, because every episode makes you so mad. You're like, really, this is a world made for men. There yes. was an episode as simple as like PPE during the pandemic and how more women were getting sick because the PPE is made for men men's small sizes, men's medium. And so the things, masks weren't fitting women properly, gloves weren't fitting women, for the, all of that, everything. And so women practitioners got sick more often than men. There's just so many fascinating episodes on that. And you're just like, this really is, it's a man's world. And we're just here to keep them entertained or something. Within that, there's also the added layer of race, because I know Invisible Women, although it's very, very good, it has had some criticism about it being written from a very white perspective, which I totally get. And there's these extra, extra elements, again, that vulnerable communities are always the one having to think about, and no one else seems to be thinking about or bothering to do the work. And it is exhausting. (laughs) If we can just go back a little bit and talk about your dad and about the society you grew up in did you go to a traditional Jordanian school yeah so in Jordan I guess you have public schools and private schools um, and the public schools are the government schools so if you were middle class and over you tended to go to a private school so I went to a private Jordanian school so it wasn't an international school but it was owned by an American principal and they had kind of the Jordanian system the American education system and the British system and my mother was also a teacher at my school so and she was a teacher in the American system so I avoided it at all costs so I went into the British system and I did my O-levels and A-levels like a good student so yeah that's where I was and it was yeah I guess you can say it was a more international education but it was a local school and not one of the best schools in Jordan everybody used to say you know they'd ask well what school did you go to do you tell them but they'll be like oh didn't you guys have a drug problem and I was like I don't know what you're talking about (laughs) it's just crazy when I look back at school days and I think I was probably so naive in a good way same yeah it's so interesting I didn't realize that they had the three educational systems did you feel that at any point you were straddling identities by going to school and then leaving school and still being in the middle of Amman? No, I feel like that was always the norm for me. Like, that's all I ever really knew. I've always lived there my whole life. I went to the same school my whole life, you know, from kindergarten to graduation. Like, my kindergarten teacher was at my graduation. This is how cute. <laughs> Um, and there were a few people in my class like we were all together from kindergarten to graduation yeah but yeah I didn't have an issue with identity I think I just realized how different my upbringing was from my friends when I would go to their houses afterwards both their parents would be Jordanian or from the region and so it was like seeing the different dynamics between the parents and between the siblings and the different pressure that they face. Like I didn't face a lot of pressure to do extracurricular stuff, but there was a certain amount of pressure to be at least decent at school. Like you don't have to be the best, but you need to have good grades. So it was more, your education's important. Everything else can wait. And for them, there was a lot of pressure of like, you need to be excellent at piano and violin and this and that. And and then the, a lot of the mothers were 
stay-at-home moms and my mom was a teacher at my school so she'd like take us to work go to work come back from work cook for us you know and then just like pass out for the day but uh, so it was a different experience seeing how other people how their families were and mine was just like we're here we're chill and then everyone was like all this other kind of pressure so it was really interesting yeah it sounds like your parents maybe had it the right way (laughs) which is nice so (laughs) except for I mean my father was like excellent at math and he just couldn't comprehend how all of his daughters (laughs) could not understand math he's like I but I'm a mathematician and a physicist how do you not have any of this it's like I don't know I don't know it's not working (laughs) no sometimes it just misses a generation (laughs) put it down to that yeah exactly were you um jealous of anyone growing up or did you notice that maybe other people had an easier time of knowing who they were where they belonged yeah I think so I feel like I think because a lot of my at-home influences were from my mother so I grew up with a lot of a lot of like western music and news in english and english programs and so i'd go to school and maybe people would be talking about the latest i don't know amr diab song and be like i don't know it or um, the latest tv show or something like that but i'm not i don't know what this is so i just either sometimes i just say I don't know what this is and people would look at me in shock and disbelief or sometimes I just pretend that I knew what it was so that you don't stand out so there are there were elements of that and then there was also always people saying you know when you're younger children can be a little cruel sometimes but there'd be people being like you're not even Jordanian you're American and you're like no but I'm like this is all I know this is my whole life and then you know when I came here well, when I would see my American cousins, they'd be like, well, you're not really, you know, you have an accent, you talk funny, blah, blah, blah. You use words that we don't use. Like, I think I remember asking my cousin and it was like, oh, how did you find Petra? And he's like, oh, well, we went down the thing and then we turned this way. And I was like, no, no. Like, how did you find, like, did you enjoy it? <laughs> like, yeah. It was just, that's when I started to notice the cultural differences where you're like, oh, I guess maybe I grew up with a different kind of English, but like nothing was ever said to me. My mother never said, oh, this is how Americans say and this is how British people say. It was just like I was going to schools, getting an education. And at some point I switched to the British system and I still write color with a U. I don't care what Americans think. I still read temperature in Celsius because Fahrenheit makes no sense to not me. to anyone either <laughs> seriously it's like what do you mean 65 what does that mean yeah there were lots of things that you kind of knew you didn't really fit in and you stood out a bit but I guess my mom always kept honing in this phrase when I was younger which is third culture kid you're a third culture kid because you come from two different cultures you grow up in a separate culture like it's all you have all these different identities but then she kept saying that's a positive thing because you can adapt to so many situations it's funny you say that I hadn't realized how prominent this movement of third culture kids was but we (laughs) had someone come speak to us about it at school when the book came out and it was such a foreign concept but I think it everyone at my school really related because the majority of people who went to my school were either children of the teachers or they were children of 
UN employees or ambassadors who work in the consulate. So for them, they really must have felt that and they moved around a lot. But I think it is true for a lot of us who grew up in a country, but then within that country had like our own microclimate and environment that we took on from and then have to face the rest of the country and maybe other family members as well. Like I found it very hard to relate to some of my family members my cousins, even though I'd see them all the time, but they went to public or private Yemeni schools. And so really we had very little in common. It was always very hard. Yeah. Now that you mentioned the family, like extended family, we were really quite different, but also there's a huge gap in age because I am the youngest of the youngest. So most of my cousins, when I was a teenager, were already like hitting 40. So that was already an issue there. But then I did have like one cousin, my uncle also married an American woman who recently passed and oh, super lovely. Actually, she taught at the American school in Jordan. And so I do have cousins who are also half half, but have a very strong Jordanian identity. And I, their spoken and written Arabic is really excellent. And then I have cousins whose parents are both Jordanian and we have very little in common and it's partially the age gap, but it's also, we just grew up with very different parents. And then I also, you know, learned how different my father's siblings are from each other that, you know, I grew up thinking everyone's like my dad, you know, everyone's like this great guy who loves having four daughters that, you know, his last daughter was born. And instead of calling her Nihaya, he called her Farah, you know, <laughs> so you're just like, okay. Um, or like Kaffa or something. No offense to any Nihayas or Kaffas, but still, I was really lucky that he was just like, yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy mm-hmm. I have another daughter. So yeah, I just grew up thinking everyone in the family is like that. Like if he was raised by the same people that everyone would be that way. And then you learn that, no, everybody's a little different. And family dynamics are different and everything's different and so you just don't yeah I feel like again with my cousins my Jordanian cousins there's also like a different culture or a different existence between us same as with like my American cousins we don't we're not that close because they don't seem to understand where I come from the different things I do like why do I care about the rest of the world you know why do I want to help the rest of the world why do I want to work on issues about human rights that is so difficult and it's so interesting what you said that about your dad and the way you speak about him really it shows how amazing he was what was it like losing him if you don't mind me asking oh it was really hard I think that's when I I think that's when I can identify that I like actually had proper depression I was 20 when he passed and I was at university. So it was really hard. And it was like towards the end of the year and I was supposed to be having exams. And I don't know, I just got a phone call at like five in the morning, Geneva time. So it was like two hours difference from Jordan. And I just heard my mom's voice on the other end. And I just remember screaming no in the phone just because I just knew there's something in someone's voice. She didn't say a word. She didn't say anything, or she, I think she said like my name, but that's all I heard and that was all I needed to know. Yeah, it was very, very hard. It was, I don't know, it was like really difficult time. And then six months after I was graduating and I moved back to Jordan and 
it was just like this getting stuck in the anger phase of grief and I feel so bad till this day about I was angry and you know you take it out on those closest to you and took it out a lot on my my mom and my sisters when we were because we were all living back home so I was really not the best person but I'm lucky that now I have like access to a really great therapist and we talk about all these things and what that was like and you know what you can do now and at the time, I think also then I realized like I was so angry, I needed to do something. So that's when I started to try to do more exercise to find a way to release, release the whatever anger, stress, whatever it was that I was feeling at the time. And that, start, that started to help. And so that meant I was like taking it out on people less, but it was difficult. There's still some times when I'm like, how, how did this happen? Because you never think it's going to happen to you and not when you're 20 right and you're like oh it's not going to happen he's fine like he's in the hospital a little he's out he's okay he's out of the hospital he's fine it'll be okay I'll see him now Christmas it'll be okay and then you know it wasn't okay so it was just like a huge shock to the system and then with that came dealing with inheritance law according to Islam again all these things that when I grew up and I took religion class, because you have to take religion class in the Jordanian uh, school system, these things were mentioned and I'd come home and I'd tell my dad, I was like, Baba, really, is it true? Like this and this will happen? I was like, we're all girls in that family. Is this what's going to happen? He's like, no, Baba, don't be silly. This isn't what's going to happen. And then he passed and I was like, oh, this is what's happening. <laughs> but we survived it, luckily, more or less. Yeah, just getting on with life, I guess. I have a hard time, I think, whenever I hear from one of my other friends that one of their parents passed away because it kind of like reignites that feeling in me. But then at the same time, I like I offer support, but then at the same time, I sometimes I'll disappear if they're like, oh, yeah, I, I don't want your support. Like, I'm fine. I don't need anything. And then I'll just like run off and be like, OK, I'm going to hide under the duvet, which I feel terrible about. But at the same time, I know that they're also very aware of like, this is a very traumatic and people <laughs> you want to be there and support and if someone says I do need you here and I need you to support me I will drop everything and come but if they're like no I'm off I'm gonna go I have so-and-so here to take care of this then I'll be like okay I'm just gonna hide yeah I mean it sounds really upsetting and I think going through grief is very subjective and it's so personal and it can be someone who means a lot to you or someone who doesn't mean a lot to you and somehow it will hit you differently every time you being the youngest I'm projecting and maybe presuming a little bit here but I wonder if no one really truly understood how it felt for you and like that anger you're still young you have your whole life and you thought your dad was going to be there with you and then he wasn't and really no one can explain that or feel the same you'll always be looking to your older sisters and thinking you had more time or you got yeah. to do something with him and it's it's really tough it's re it's impossible yeah absolutely and that's that's exactly how I felt was like I also I think before I went off to uni like when I turned 18 we got super close me and my dad he was a like a lifelong smoker and he had quit and we were all like bracing ourselves like oh no what's this gonna be because he already had like quite a temper and then when he quit, he was just the happiest man. 
easygoing. I could like crack a joke at his expense and he'd laugh. Whereas before I'd be like, hey, I'm your father, blah, blah, blah. So we like really got along and he would just like, he would call me sometimes to come to the living room at night and then he'd just like make gestures. And I was like, okay, got you. Come back with like the tea and the sandwich that he wanted. And my mom's like, how did you know? I was like, that's it. But yeah, and I just, I guess I assumed naively that we'd have lots of time together and more time to chat. And uh, yeah, it was taken away. And I think that's why I was, it was honestly years that I was stuck in that anger phase. And especially now, sometimes my sisters will talk about my dad and they'll say, oh, remember this time when this thing happened? I was like, I wasn't born. I wasn't there or like, you know, whatever. And so it just like really upsets me that I didn't have that time and that we don't really have that many pictures, just me and him also. So that's tough. But, you know, I have fond memories. We do have like a great family portrait. And then I also got a friend. Um, she's an artist. She, you might have seen her stuff, Love on a Bike. So when it was my mom's 70th birthday, we wanted to do her a special gift. And so we were like, oh, we don't have that many family portraits. Can you draw one? here are all like the special animal animals that were in our life and you know here's what we all look like individually different pictures and so she drew a family photo of us with like details from our house and all of this really great stuff and it was like the most amazing I think family portrait that we have even though it's like a drawn and it's not like drawn like you can actually tell see the details of someone's face it's more like I don't know what the style is called but I call it cartoon yeah, so I have those things that, you know, you remember and you try to remember. And sometimes it's better not to remember. Some days you're like, I would rather just let's get distracted by something. And then other days you're like, yeah, I want to sit here and, and like laugh at the ridiculous thing that we used to do together or whatever it was. Yeah, that's completely understandable. It would be very nice, I think, now for people to start understanding that everyone is going through some form of grief almost on a daily basis and sometimes it hits stronger than other days and it would be nice to think that there's a little bit more compassion you know sometimes you do wake up and you feel I just don't know if I can face it because I just feel so sad and heartbroken and that heartbreak is really hard to then convince yourself that life is worth carrying on for yeah that heartbreak is also kind of very similar to like other I don't actually there's not similar to anything it's just a different thing and it just lingers it's there constantly where you're even if you're not actively thinking about it it's there in the back of your mind and you're missing someone so immensely you know now it's been 18 years since he passed and I like see he's still on my mind but you know that's what happens when you have a really great father who also put you in a crazy bubble, so that when he passed, you were suddenly like, "Wait, Sharia Allah? What?" That must have been absolutely insane. Did you feel lonely as a fivesome fighting those battles? Yeah, I think so, and I think a lot of things caught us by surprise. If you want to talk about like conflict and like identity, that was like a huge hit to identity because you're like oh but but this isn't how we do things like this isn't our family we're not like this we're you know we give everybody equal share equal opportunity women have the right to education like why would you take 
why would my uncle take my inheritance from me? So it became a very difficult conversation. And the thing I, in Jordan, you can, as uncle, I don't know what the word is in English, in Arabic, you say, you can like rescind or... Yeah, I guess rescind. Uh, yeah, rescind your inheritance. So you can just like sign off and say, I don't want this and give it. But it, it's so funny how when money's involved in things, people suddenly become greedy. So it became like a bit of a back and forth with the uncles a bit um, until we reached an agreement through lawyers. That was another shock of like, oh, I never expected my uncles to be like this. Or I never expected that I would need lawyers to get involved, that I would have to ask my uncles for my money. That's my inheritance. And it was really interesting. I think that is a key example of how you can be living in a country that is seemingly progressive or be in a family that is seemingly progressive. And then all of a sudden the rug is pulled from under your feet and you're having to fight stereotypes, traditionalism, conservatism while going through grief and on your own. But I'd be right in maybe assuming that others around you, your sisters and your mom, maybe thought that you were asking for too much or being too demanding. I think my sisters and my mother, we were all on the same page with this. Yeah, and no one like externally was telling you off or anything. Well, I mean, the family, they're like, come on, you don't want to, you don't want to ruin the family reputation by showing people that you're upset with us. I was like, well, you don't want to ruin the family reputation by taking a widow and her children, her orphans money. So it became this thing of like, no, this is our right. And this is what we're going to ask for. And you know, you don't want to give up your money, that's fine. But you can't prevent me from telling people that my uncle, who is wealthy and well-known, refused to give his orphan nieces their money. I mean, historically, you know why the uncles get the money is meant to be there so that they can then take care of the nieces and whatever needs they have. And But this is, uh, you know, I... <laughs> had a job my sisters had jobs everybody was working we don't need you to take care of us so you can give us our rights so yeah it was a really stressful time and honestly I think the person who really got us through it all was my mom and she was she was going through a lot of grief but she also I think she just felt responsible and that she had to do this for my dad to make sure like we were okay and that that's what he wanted. And she did say like constantly, he wanted to try to transfer a lot of the property and stuff into our names. But at the time, I think Jordanian law shifted, the prices of changing names went up. And so there wasn't an, an opportunity for him to do that. So it was interesting times. It was a few years and a lot of struggles. And honestly, I think it was my mom who was the rock and in, how she was a rock when I'm sure she all she wanted to do was fall apart is is always impressive to me and I think I don't give her enough credit I'm not very good at expressing to her how much I appreciate things we're just very weird like that but I mean I really do appreciate that she like she powered through in one of the hardest times of her life I can't imagine what she would have been going through what you would have all been going through and I think it's scenarios like that make me wonder how important it is for those of us who are able to and have the privilege and the education and the strength to fight systems have to fight them and how backwards the world is still towards women and vulnerable people it's so heartbreaking it really is tough to see 
I guess moving on from that, can you or have you ever imagined what life would look like if you weren't so tired? <laughs> what would the world look like? I don't know. I just feel like it would be like rainbows and butterflies, like <laughs> a whole different place. I often think like I need to get up and do more things. And the idea of having the energy to get up and do things would be amazing. I think that's all I want in life. But so many things weigh on you and, and take up space in your mind. I spent a lot of time yesterday imagining a scenario at work on Monday because I have a meeting and I don't know what it's about. And so I was imagining like seven different scenarios and I couldn't sleep because I was imagining all these scenarios. So like, wow, if I didn't spend all that time worrying about something that I don't know what it's about, I could have slept decently and I could have had more energy and done something more than just go for my haircut. <laughs> I could have done something else in between, but after my haircut and cooking lunch, I was like, I'm gonna take a nap. And then, and then I jumped on and saw you, <laughs> that, that was my day. But I don't know, I'd like to think that I'd be able to do more things. Like I always say, I wanna volunteer more. I wanna be part of, I really enjoy the neighborhood that I live in. There's a really great community vibe and I wanna invest more in the community, but I feel like sometimes I just can't bring myself to do it just cause Partially the energy thing, partially the introvert thing, but I've become really good uh, friends with one of the neighbors on the block, this older guy named Rudy, and he's always like, I know where you live. If you don't come to this event, I'm going to come knock on your door and pull you out. I was like, okay. I was like, but you know, I'm kind of shy. He's like, baby, I'm there. You don't have to be shy. I was like, okay, <laughs> I guess it's fine. <laughs> So I'm trying, I'm trying to get more involved in the community. I feel like it's really um, a great place and lots of different people uh, with different backgrounds. And so I like that about this. I honestly don't know. I think I've never really imagined it for a brief moment when I, so yeah, full disclosure. I mean, I talked it briefly, like I have depression and part of it, I think, really stemmed from like losing my dad and then I think it was just I think it's a thing that definitely genetically exists and that maybe I've had my whole life but didn't really know um and so when moving to the U.S. and then I had the boss situation that was really bad and I was really in a bad state my doctor recommended prescription medication and then recently I switched to a different medication and it changed my life it was like day and night I was like oh my god is this what normal people feel like? Like I suddenly had all this energy. I felt enthusiastic and motivated. I, I mean, it tapers off eventually, but in the beginning I was like, this is great. <laughs> so I think I imagine that that's what life would be like if I were less tired. It would be just like this whole day and night of motivation and enthusiasm. I think motivation and enthusiasm are good words. I, I myself can't imagine that <laughs> feeling. I relate a lot to what you said about wanting to do more, but then not really being able to. Often I'm like my harshest critic. I'm like, oh, I'm such a hypocrite. I'm constantly saying how I want to help people and maybe volunteer. And there's this one organization here in the UK that I favorited their website, I think 18 months ago. 
<laughs> and I have not gotten in touch with I always find excuses and I don't know if it's because the expectation of is so big like what if they expect more of me than I can give or I don't know what it is but I'm so glad to hear that you're like pushing yourself and, and doing that and I actually think it's illegal for someone to put in a meeting on a Monday without telling you what it's about yeah <laughs> 100% that's just not okay and terrible terrible management yeah maybe if we go for one final really big question which is that you and I, we talk about toxicity a lot. We talk about toxicity in the workplace, the environment, hustle culture, which we've touched upon. Who do you think can change this? I think it's an entire generational shift, I think. And I think we're starting to see that more with the Gen Z. Like, I think the millennials are like slowly being like, yeah, I'm going to take a step back. I'm going to set boundaries. But I think... Gen Z is the one that's being like, why should I work for you? Why should I like, why, why should I do all these extra things for what purpose? And I think it's excellent. This is what we need. We grew up with parents and, and family that was like, you have to just keep powering through. And with that, you will get reward. And with that, you'll be able to buy your house. But the reality has been something else for us. So I think after our wonderful experiences, I mean, I think I saw something that was like the millennials are basically more or less on the same page as Gen Z in terms of like living paycheck to paycheck, not really having any savings, not feeling like you have a future. So yeah, there's a lot that can be done there. I think millennials are still a little cautious about pushing back too much but I see that that's coming out like a lot more with Gen Z which is excellent and I'm here for it and I feel like it's great to be for everyone to be called out on their bullshit as long as it's you know within reason because some things are like a little exaggerated I think I was speaking with a friend recently who's talking about they were going on a work retreat somewhere and they just had floods and in that region and they're like please be respectful of the potential trauma that the community is experiencing from the floods and I was like yeah there was a crazy earthquake in Turkey there are people starving in all parts of the world there is like catastrophe and you're like when we go to this place for our retreat let's be mindful of the flood trauma and it wasn't even like intense floods like it wasn't didn't result in death it, I can understand if it was like oh we're having this meeting in Turkey let's be respectful I can get that but being like oh they just had some really bad floods where nobody died so sometimes I think there's like a little bit too much fluff and I think it's good to like call out on the bullshit. Just like with privilege, I think trauma is very subjective. So they're probably thinking they're being really respectful. Yeah. But not really but reading the tone. I think that's it. It's like there is, you can be respectful, but it's, it's a flood. I'm sorry. It's like, it's like when you go somewhere and it's a drought. Maybe this is just how I was raised or something, but it's a flood. It's not like all of these buildings that fell and people you know are under them are, how are we using the word trauma are we overusing it are we using it you know are, is it losing its meaning because you're using it for everything and that with people getting desensitized to a lot of the news I think is a problem so I don't I just feel like 
we can use a different word. Let's be respectful of the fact that they've just gone through a difficult time because of the floods. That's one thing. But to say like trauma is a bit much, I think. And I think that should be saved more for kind of conflict, crisis, humanitarian issues, like issues that cause trauma, generational trauma is a real thing. Like all of these different things that lived experiences that people have that involve trauma. And the flood, I can understand. It can be catastrophic and it can damage your property and it can cause all sorts of problems for you financially. But I still feel like trauma is a strong word for that. I also think it's a bit strange that they were still going on the retreat. Yeah. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Stopping the retreat, maybe that would have been that would have been more reasonable. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. I want to thank you so much for your time and for being so open and for your thoughts. And and I know it's really hard to be open in this way, and I really am very grateful for you. Yeah, no, thank you so much.